0: Coming up next on the Two Percent, Two Phenomenal Black Male K-12 Educators, Brandon Miller and Teray Johnson join us to discuss their HBCU experiences and what today's parents need to know to support their children during the COVID-19 pandemic. You don't want to miss this. Greetings and welcome to the 2% a podcast by Black male educators for individuals who are seeking to learn more insight about our experiences, our narratives, our perspectives on all things education. Um, we have hosting today uh, the phenomenal one, uh, Dr. David Sandals from Cal State Bakersfield, uh, plus two outstanding educators who are currently in the field. Hopefully our insights, our experiences, our stories will empower you, impact you on part two of episode two entitled, Welcome Back. Dr.
1: Sandals, how are you doing today? I am wonderful, sir. Thank you so much for asking. How are you, Dr. Kirkwood?
0: I'm doing fine, man. We're just uh, right now in the season of getting teacher prep, teacher, teacher prep students ready for the school year um we're closing out the summer semester i um, entering fall and so there's a lot of conversation about um, what's going to happen um, with a quarantine mandatory lockdown and how we are going to educate and impact students and the question really is are we capable of providing a robust learning experience for our candidates and that is to be determined but fortunately we have two gentlemen Um, that are on the ground. They've been in the field for quite some time. Um, Their experience will speak to and through how we as listeners can really support our own family members, uh, support students, support other educators, because ultimately we want all students to be successful uh, with an emphasis on black students, uh, because we know the narrative to be true, that far too long our communities have been impacted uh, by devastation after devastation. And unfortunately, when setback occur, um, we managed to carry the bunt of the um, impact. So um, hopefully the insight that uh, we receive from these gentlemen will carry us forward and allow us to continue to educate and to mobilize our community. That being said, I want to bring our guests on to join us for the 2% I'm gonna allow them to introduce themselves. Brandon, I'm gonna start with you. Go ahead and introduce yourself.
2: Uh, what's going on, Two Percent Community Family? Uh, my name is Brandon Miller. I uh, went to undergrad at Howard University. Graduated in 2007 with a bachelor's in business administration, with the focus in business management. Did you say Howard? Yeah. Oh yeah. Ain't
0: you, H-U, huh? Oh yeah. You know. We. Have, <laughs> we have, you gotta- You got a lot of love in the the 2% community. HU is represented worldwide, as you know. Go ahead. Always, always,
2: always. Um, And then I'm a a graduate from the Cal State Teach Program in 2013. Uh, I've been a classroom teacher at every grade level, in some capacity from first grade all the way up to about 10th grade. Um, And I'm currently a second grade teacher at Wilder's Preparatory Academy uh, in Englewood.
0: So you are a black male teacher supporting, currently supporting second grade students and you've taught at all grade levels. Um, we got, we have a lot to talk about and a lot to learn from you. So we're excited to have you join us, Brother Brandon. I appreciate it, I appreciate being uh, invited. Okay, and then uh, for our audience, you know, there's a, a s- several fraternities represented, uh, but I must say one of the finest, a uh, smooth represented fraternity brother is on right now. Brother Torrey, come on to the mic,
3: please. <laughs> always, always got to represent Cap Alpha Psi. Yo, yo. <laughs> Torrey Johnson, I'm a, a 2002 graduate from Dillard University in New Orleans. Uh, earned my undergrad degree in English uh then went on to uh, earn my master's from the Principal Leadership Institute at UCLA in 2007. I've been in education for, this is actually starting my 18th year, and I've worked in four different districts in California um, as a classroom teacher, teaching English, um, and taught secondary, so high school, ninth through 12th grade, and then went on to the adult school as a counselor. And now, in my sixth year as a vice principal, specifically over special education.
0: It's interesting, we have two brothers representing HBCUs. And before we, excuse me, that is so disrespectful. I have a, a puppy, I'm a, a locker of, I'm sorry, audience. Uh, we have two brothers representing HBCUs, um, and there's something to that experience. And so, before we move on, if you don't mind, Dr. Sandals, Can we have these gentlemen talk about their experience at the HBCU um, level and how that maybe led them or inspired you all to go into the
1: teaching profession? Certainly, that is relevant and essential experience to leverage here. So I'd love to hear about that. Gentlemen, would either of you care to begin?
3: Sure, I'll go ahead and get started. I think like uh, a lot of people, you know, your your desire to go to an HBCU is really informed, at least for me, uh, growing up in the 80s and the 90s, it was really informed by a different world. Um, and so I just knew that as a kid, I just wanted to continue my education at an HBCU. Had a couple opportunities to go to different places, one of which was Howard, um, but definitely wanted to get a different experience. And so I chose New Orleans um, as a as a really good mix because it was a it was a mix between being a metropolitan city but it was small enough for me to be able to uh, really have individuals to look after me and I think that that experience really helped inform me as a student and it really helped inform who I would become as an educator.
0: Brother Terray, I've always said, um, because I, I mentioned earlier, I did college access work. And I realized at least about 10 years ago that in California public schools in particular, we were not nurturing and affirming black male students. Dr. Danny Martin called our classrooms for black students a hostile space. And so what we started to do as a nonprofit college access program, was work and partner with HBCUs because we knew that black male students in particular needed more support and affirmation and California public universities could not and would not provide that for our students. Brandon, Teresa you think that do you think that's true for your experience?
2: absolutely um you know honestly one of the reasons that that i'm in education is to try and uh help education not be so adversarial especially for our young black boys as well teach lower elementary because the the problem is and and i've talked about it on numerous platforms the the issue is by the time they get to even high school and it's time to actually start considering college a lot of these boys have checked out of the educational system as a whole you know and you know when you go into a situation thinking about how to survive it rather than how to thrive in it, how to excel in it then wow. as you get as you get later on you realize that the things that you need you missed out on because you didn't you weren't uh, in a position to receive it. So, you know what I mean? It, 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 the, we we say in the culture they block their blessings because, you know, they've had these white women, you know, honestly, from K through seven, let's call it. And then, you know, you don't really, really start seeing black men in education until you get to middle school, high school. Hmm. And you have one or two, you know, the, the big thing this summer has been when did you have your first black male teacher? Mine, my first black male teacher was at Howard. Hmm. So, um, you know, if it weren't for the wow. fact that, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, poured into me from outside of the education <laughs> scope, you know, I may not have been there. You know, I'm a second generation HBC. My mother went to Tougaloo. Um, hmm. And so, you know, the the idea that especially in California, where, you know, again, growing up in the 80s and 90s, if you don't have a lot of forces pulling you in the positive direction it was it was very easy to fall into the negative direction you know what i mean and so like even when you're in the cal state system or you know a uc system you're always 15 minutes away from them same people that didn't go nowhere aren't doing anything and it's more of them than it is a black man that were doing something so you know going to howard you know, you got a campus full of black people that for the most part were all about their business, all about getting it done. You know, I had never been around so many black men, let black people in general, but black men specifically that were all about, you know, uplifting, doing the next, next, next thing, you know? And so, uh, you know, I think if it wasn't for Howard, I probably, you know, wouldn't have gotten into teaching. I would have, you know, tried to find something that was a little bit more lucrative financially for myself. Um, So, you know, I definitely think that without Howard, you know, I I couldn't be who I am today.
0: Uh, Drey and Dr. Sandals, you all want to jump in on this and and provide some insight?
3: Yes, I'd actually like to jump in. I I think um, sometimes when we talk about this idea of survival versus uh, thriving, um, or this idea of really choice to, to do well, um, it's kind of tricky because I, I, don't feel, I don't feel like I was in a really a full survival mode. It was, it was always thriving and really it was like thriving from K-12 and, and I'll explain a little bit more. Um, in LA Unified, you have the opportunity from a very young age to fill out the choices book and um, you know, become a part of a magnet program or some, some school in that manner. So that was one part for me, just having that opportunity to really, like, choose what school to go to. Um, But then also having, you know, the Black aunties who were around. Mm -hmm. And in my whole education, like from K through 6, I had a Black female teacher every year. Mm -hmm. And my mom worked at the school. Mm -hmm. so And I lived in a neighborhood. So all of those pieces together, I really think that's what helped in the thriving part because... You know, they, they would definitely say, if you don't get your stuff together, we're gonna to tell your mom. Or mm-hmm. they, already had the, they already had the power to be able to discipline me if something was wrong. Uh, so that, that was one part. And then also being able to kind of touch on different areas within the district. I went to elementary school in South LA. I went to middle school on the west side and in the valley and then I went to high school in East LA. So I really got a chance to be a part of, I would say what LA Unified had envisioned in the 70s for an integration program. I really had an opportunity to touch, you know, really see how that would come to fruition. And then that's what helped inform the next steps which was going to an HBCU.
0: So essentially you had folks within the system to support you in addition to your, the black women that were so prominent in your life. Your mom worked at the school, you had allies. And so I'm thinking about that paradigm versus uh, someone um, that may not have that type of access and the challenges that come with essentially trying to navigate K-12 as a black male child without the internal support and it's, it's funny because uh, most of us can speak to one or two individuals that kind of came in the gap, um, a, a ram in the bush that really helped to um, steer us in the right direction. And I know, uh, mm-hmm. Sandals, you can speak to that. Uh, someone coming in to support you to ensure that although you may be going in the wrong direction, they can redirect you and support you so that you can be successful in the K-12
1: system. Brother Kirkwood, you set me up rather nicely, sir. You know, I'll start by saying I really connect with Brandon on the elementary school experience as a longtime elementary school teacher, as a black male. I found and the literature supports there are just very few people in that space Mm -hmm. connect with you pretty, um, pretty well in that in that in that area. I also wanted to speak to an area that each of you alluded to, each of the last two of you alluded to, which is the idea that comes out of slavery, American slavery, which is mm. other, other, other mothering and other fathering. Mm. And so simply for those who don't know what that means is oftentimes you don't have that direct impact in terms of parental guidance. And so others step in and they fulfill those roles. Well, by analogy, in education, because there are so few of us as Black educators in general, but men in particular. In my space, what happened was through my school, in my formative years, I didn't have those Black male teacher role models, but I had Black males who were in other spaces who mm-hmm. informed my psychology by filling in those gaps, as one of you mentioned, and just talking me up in terms of becoming a better student, becoming a better athlete, et cetera so that's unfortunately the literature it falls short there's a serious gap there in terms of the impact of other fathering and in your cases other mothering to help fill in some of those gaps that exist
0: and and these two gentlemen that are um really speaking truth and really at least lifting up my spirit in terms of their journey and then their return back to the very communities that supported them um can you all tell us more about that return back Brenda? we'll start with you
2: um i mean for me it's it's it is a sense of pride that came from being from inglewood you know i was born in yes, Ray- sir being, being born and raised in Englewood, yes, sir. I, the school that I teach at is around the corner from the house, from the apartment, my first uh, apartment that I lived in, and you know, with that, I've always wanted to see Englewood do well. But but I think the greater thing about it for me was that in looking at teaching, I always knew that I wanted to be uh, with kids that look like me because if I look like them, then that means that, you know, they'll kind of resonate with me a little bit differently. So mm-hmm. being able to come back to Englewood, which is one of the few places in in the city of LA that still has a school with, you know, 97% black students, you know, it, it was a natural fit for me because not only did I always want to see Englewood of the city do well, but I also wanted to teach my kids, because I felt like I have something specific and special that I can offer them that's different than if I'm at a school with white children, if I'm at a school with predominantly Latino children, or these kids needed to see me, yes, so, sir. Uh, you know, being able to being able to teach there and then my other school that I primarily taught at was the Watts Learning Center being able to be at a school that has kids that look like me so that they have somebody that they can see that dresses up on a day that ain't church or court mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know be able to see somebody that when i talk to them i can i can talk to them on their frequency you know the idea of other fathers yes. Yes. I, I talk like the people at home talk so <laughs> when i say you know what i'm saying even if i'm not using direct, you know,
0: colloquialisms and whatnot. You know, really brother, love it. Speaking true. Brother Tari, please. Sure.
3: Um I think that my, my process to come back was um it was a roundabout. You know, when you graduate from college, you 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 spend some time in uh, in school, you get your degree and then you think, okay, now what's next? And I think I got to my senior year in undergrad, and I thought that I wanted to go and get a PhD in English and teach at the university level. Mm -hmm. And then that really wasn't what I wanted to do, Um, mostly because when I applied to a lot of the programs, I I think that I realized it, it really wasn't and I wanted to look for something different and I had a lot of family members and experiences in education and so I thought well maybe I'll teach English at uh, high school and then if the PhD finds itself in that manner that that'd be great and if it doesn't then maybe I'll I'll look at different avenues in education. Um, And so when I was working on my master's in teaching at the University of New Orleans, um, I actually met one of the presidents, a black female, uh, older black female, who she was the president of the teachers union um, Mm. in the Inland Empire, Chafee Joint Union High School District. Mm. And she told me, you know, when you come back home, I want want to, um, I want you to come out to the IE, I want you to meet all the different principals and then um, you know I'll just take you around and see if you if you like what you see and I remember going to colony high school and yes, meeting sir. Jim Brody <laughs> and uh, Jim Brody told me without a teaching credential with only my with only my undergrad degree yes. no c best nothing I'll see you in the fall and that that's really kind of how my um, experience in education has been it's just been a series of series of fortunate events that have led me from one place to another, um, I really hadn't planned a whole lot with it, but I just kind of went with whatever the current, where it was taking me, and I think from there to where I am now, it's it's been able to give me some experiences. Um, but even in all of that time, I've had an opportunity to meet different kids and meet different faculty members and staff that have allowed me to shape them as much as they have allowed, as much as they have shaped me. And all of those individuals have been, you know, through kind of that um, group of individuals who are people of color. And so that's what's, you know, taken me from there to then LA Unified and then now to the Antelope Valley where I would say it mirrors a lot of what yes. South LA and the community yes. that I came yes.
1: from, it mirrors yes. that community a lot. Yes. Does the literature speak to this this dynamic at all? Primarily what it talks about is the impetus for Black males going into education. Mm. And it talks about over an overwhelming overarching way Black males tend to go into education to give back sort of in an altruistic manner. Give back to the communities that nurtured them. And so what these gentlemen are saying is in alignment with the broad themes, the broad strokes that appear out of the corpus of literature concerning black males in education. Hmm. But it also speaks to their particular, I'm sorry, Jim, I'm speaking about you as if you aren't here. It speaks to your particular um, desire to be change agents in the communities that nurture yes, I can go on for another hour just because I'm,
0: I'm really um, not only intrigued But I feel a sense of empowerment listening to uh, Brandon Teray share their story because not only does it mirror my experience, uh, but we want these types of narratives to continue. So when we come back, we'll talk more about what they're doing to support students in the COVID era. We'll be back in a few.
1: Okay, everyone, welcome back to our next segment of the 2% podcast. I'd like to welcome our guests once again and thank them for being with us. Before we begin in earnest, I'd like to give a shameless plug to anyone considering going into education, uh, particularly black males. Thinking about going into education, I would really urge you to consider the elementary education route, because again, it's as mentioned in the segment one, it's an area that is sorely lacking of the black male presence in that context. So just a plug for you if you're considering it. And we can certainly provide contact information near the end so that you can have contacts in different spaces if you elect to connect with someone. So for this next segment, gentlemen, I'd like to speak about COVID, COVID-19. So. Really the national conversation about COVID and the return to the school is really replete with controversy and inflammation. Debates range from whether students should return to school at all, as to whether they should be social distancing and or wearing masks. So as we prepare to start school again later this month, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. But, But to begin, I wanna ask you, how do you Prepare. How are you preparing to re-enter the school space under this new context, specifically under COVID? So more specifically, let me ask you this. Because questions abound as to how parents, teachers, and students will prepare themselves, let's start with how you as an educator and or administrator are preparing to return to the school context. And please just fire away, jump in either of you.
2: All right, well, so for me, um, I pretty much never stopped working. Um, when we got to the end of last semester, um, you know, my as part of my leadership team, I'm a grade level lead for second grade. Um, we we spent most of the summer looking for uh, the resources that were most effective and would continue to be kind of most effective in helping our students in this upcoming school year Uh, when we left last you know last year on friday we left and we were like all right see you on monday and we got an email over the weekend saying we're going online and everybody was kind of in a scramble to try and start putting things together um it was it was a lot in terms, you know a lot of different websites and, and digital resources were offering free trials so the, the last 10 weeks of school were more or less like a trial period to figure out what resources work, what we like, what we didn't like, um, what gave us good data to help us drive our level of instruction. Um, and so for the summertime, uh, with, with my staff, we've been, um, again, trying to finalize what programs would Uh, plan we're going to have in terms of what will it look like if we go all the way digital what will it look like if we have hybrid so because I'm a charter school we kind of had a little bit of flexibility of not being in LAUSD but we also had to take into account that uh, we had to have a plan that was going to be safe for all stakeholders teachers the staff you know the lunch staff like you mentioned on the last episode if the kids come back everybody's got to come back and what would that look like how will we, you know, mitigate the the dangers and everything? So um, my primary function has been finding some of the educational tools that are not only best for me on the teacher side, but that have the ease of access and ease of use for the students who are going to be at home. Because again, we've got a lot of parents that have never had to teach their kid. And now all of a sudden, they're the mm-hmm. full-time teacher, as it were. So we've been just working to get the the different platforms up and running.
1: And I know from personal experience, that's a Herculean effort. It's so much orientation that needs to change from the way we did things previously to going into this new space. So I definitely appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, Brother Tori, how about you? Well, the, the, the piece that I started off with my
3: department and, um, Less less so the, the the entire school, but just specifically the individuals who are in the special ed department is really the way that you start is the way that you end. Hmm. So if you start off in a frantic manner, hmm. then we're going to end we're going to end this whole process in a frantic manner. Um, it was on a Friday that our district had made a decision to go on distance learning, and then within that two week period, I think we were we had a spring break, probably a week after that, that we pretty much used that two-week period as a dead period for students and faculty, but then also as a thinking period for our Division of Ed Services at the district office, along with site administrators to really figure out what it was that we were going to do. Of course, there was another layer of uh, work that had to happen for special ed. But all of that really folded into the decision to go completely online. I think that what really saved our district in terms of instruction was that we had already been a school that was connected with Google. All of our email was connected with Google. Um, A lot of our staff members are certified as Google educators. And we had individuals who had already used some hybrid models of videos or Google Classroom. So when it was a shift to now go completely distance learning, it wasn't really a shift in uh, a complete shift in mindset because individuals had already understood how to do that. It probably was more a shift in mindset for more of the teachers who didn't use uh, Google Classroom as a as a full out platform Um, throughout the school year so we went on distance learning from essentially April through May closed out the school year and then we went on distance learning for the summer and then over the summer there was an ongoing conversation about will we return uh, completely on campus will we have a hybrid model or will we have complete distance learning um, we made the decision to remain on distance learning at least through the first semester and school starts on uh, on Monday and again the ongoing conversation has been the way that you start is the way that you end um, in my department specifically there are about 60 individuals both certificated and classified and our site leadership team that I oversee and so they we make up probably well not probably we actually make up a majority of the school and even though there's an actual principal for our school as a vice principal for special ed i essentially am the principal over special ed and so really making sure that staff kind of carried that mantra throughout that's been able to help with registration that's also been able to help with um, how they interact with other individuals who are on campus and um, I think that we've, you know, we've started off pretty well. It's yet to be seen how all of that will, will then uh, unfold on Monday when we start additional registration for students. But I think that our staff members really, uh, really have taken hold to that.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. I, I love the mantra, if you will, that you've adopted. And how you start is how you will finish. It's something I used as an athlete myself, as a cross-country runner. I always told myself, if I get off to a great start, then I have an opportunity to, to flourish at the finish. So I, that connects with me on a personal level. But let me also ask you, and this is a follow-up question for both of you, unrelated to instruction, do you personally have any health safety concerns, either for yourself or for students?
2: Okay, uh, I'll go. So for for me, not not as much um for you know in terms of personally um i do have concerns uh my mother is uh you know in a nursing home Mm -hmm. uh where for most of this pandemic you know i haven't been able to go see her uh because of you know the concern especially for the elderly and you know they're more susceptible um and so though i am not personally concerned, like as Brandon, that Brandon might get sick. Um, again, when you, when you have this constant contact with, you know, my classroom is 22 students, but there's 600 kids in the building. Plus all of the adults, plus this, and you have no control over who they are with or where they go or so on and so forth. If I were to, uh, come into contact and be asymptomatic or, be you know uh, 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 a carrier of this virus that's that's been claiming so many lives and then to go into a community where they're the highest risk population um it, it, it's it's a situation where i have my reservations about mm. what this would look like long term of if we were going to be trying to go back to school now uh there we just it just seems like we're still learning so much about uh, the, the ins and outs of this virus and how it's transmitted and so on and so forth mm-hmm. that it concerns me, not just for my mother personally, but again, in order to see my mother, I have to go into a community of everybody's family members.
0: Hmm.
2: Oh, just wrapping up, just saying that my concerns aren't so much within the school population, uh, it's more so about, you know, outside the, the school.
1: To me, that is a legitimate concern and it brings to mind other discussions, debates that have raged here locally and then nationally concerning precautions that people are taking or failing to take. But I'm curious, um, Brother Toure, how about you from your perspective? Do you have any health safety concerns, either for yourself or for your students? Uh,
3: for me, it's not uh, physical health concerns personally, but it's. I think I've I kind of expand this idea of health Um, more so the mental health and the economic health of the students and the families who are there. And again, I can, I speak specifically about our special ed population Mm -hmm. when we're talking about our T M H or Prevoke students, many of those families lack the resources to, you know, the knowledge to be able to do um, the instruction that's happening. They don't have the financial resources to, even when we provide Chromebooks to students, um, they don't have the financial resources to have the internet at home um, so that's that's been a challenge um, and then the other individuals who are at work who are deemed as essential workers, those individuals also have kids too so you know you, you you're trying to service students, but then the people who are servicing students also have their own students at home who need mm-hmm. who need assistance so I think that's where. I have difficulty trying to understand why districts are, are um, you know, not just going ahead and saying let's just make sure that people are at home, um, so that we can ensure that we have the that everyone has the physical health. Um, but kind of having these these hybrid models that really hmm. they might work for one group or help this one group, but then they're hurting another group. And I guess that could be the case that could be wagered for any one of the models that that we decide to make um, or decide to choose i should say
1: and and thank you for broadening the the context Mm -hmm. to to health as it applies to mental health and economic health so thank you for that and that's an important discussion that could probably justify its own podcast (laughs) so gentlemen as we wrap up this segment and look forward to the next segment What we'll be doing in the next piece is we'll be looking at particular tips and strategies that you people, you fine gentlemen, can include to help listeners out there as they delve into the work needed to prepare for the beginning of school in just a couple of weeks here. So with that, we're going to step away for just a couple of moments and we'll return with our next segment.
0: Welcome back. Uh, We've been blessed to have two uh, phenomenal educators who are on the ground uh, doing the work that uh, means so much to their students, to the teachers that they're working with, uh, to their communities. And so we salute these brothers uh, for remaining committed to uh, this work of education. Now, audience, we need you to get out your pen and pad um, as we are going to share some insight into best practices, tips, ways in which you can support your children, uh, your family members, as they're preparing to go back to school. So make sure you take notes, listen, learn. I got mine ready. Brandon, we need to hear from you. In terms of teaching, in terms of learning, what are you doing? And then what are you recommending that your students and their parents do in order to continue to learn and grow during the COVID era of COVID-19? so so for me as a teacher um you
2: you know i'm starting to kind of get my my area together so i actually uh my the the house i live in has a basement and so this is like my my space i come down here is the basement yeah
0: you like you like like wu-tang and stuff we say wu-tang a lot but in the basement yeah
2: man i'm in the basement you know Yes, sir. you (laughs) you know So, you know, I come down to my basement. I have all of my stuff that I need here. Yeah, yeah, sir. And this is like my lab. And so... Oh, okay. (laughs) Yes, sir. So so with that, you know, I'll kind of just volleyball back and forth. With that, parents start now finding that area that's just their school area. You know, if it's going to be the kitchen table. Okay. Let it be the kitchen table. Set it up so that that can be their area. They need to have an area or a space um as much as possible that's for their um their schooling and and so then that's where their materials are kept if you need a little box or whatever find an area where they can be um, um and they can be there uninterrupted for you know whatever span of time um i think that's the primary the primary focus for both me and what parents should be looking to do um so you know i have all of my materials for the most part i have a few things that i don't have to go pick up from our campus but you know we're sending home the materials that the kids need go over it with them you know so with with But what if
0: it's it's, you know and i'm um a lot of parents and they don't i don't think they mean any harm but prevalent in our community what if it's that new math i don't get that new math or what if it's something they don't understand you saying going over it with them so what do they do well, so, so so before we get to the math itself, like
2: we're not talking about the lessons. The teachers are expected to teach the lessons, mm. But if possible, sit in on the, the lessons while the teachers are teaching them. But I'm talking about just literally open the stuff and look at what you have. Hmm. Look at what tools you have. Like, you know what I mean? You may not know the common core way of adding, let's say, but you know that these are blocks. Look how many blocks we have. Count the blocks together. That That doesn't take you having a degree or having been trained in common core or, you know, mm-hmm. any of that. So I'm, I'm not even at the, the complicated part yet. I'm just right. literally look at everything, touch everything, let them touch it. Let them play with it. Let them build something with it. Let them get used to seeing it so that when we get to class time, that's not when they're seeing it for the first time and they want to uh, instinctually play with it. You know what I mean? Let mm-hmm. them get that that part out of their system before they get to the class setting you know um and so then but then to answer your question more directly about the new math the new listen you can learn how to be a plumber an electrician or anything off of youtube youtube go to youtube like everybody everybody has youtube but like download it on their phone when you get it so there's you know there's really not a reason where you should not know how to do something because they've got 30 videos literally from the textbook that we use. Mm -hmm. You can type in the title of that textbook, chapter one, and there's a video of somebody else teaching it. So if you didn't get a one I taught it or you missed that lesson or whatever the case may be, go to YouTube, type in what the lesson is and watch the video. You know what I mean?
0: What did my boy Deontay Wilder say? Google it. You believe in Google, Google, don't you? Google. Google it. Do your Googles. They got them. I promise <laughs> the,
2: the, the internet is there for you. All you have to do is type in the question you're asking, and they'll tell you what website to go to. You know, and if you're not sure and they ask you to pay for it, type in the question and then type the word free after it so that you know that you're going to get a free resource. You know what I mean? But dude, yes, sir. Google it. You Google it. Google it. Khan Academy, like there's so many things that are free.
1: Yes.
0: Google, (laughs) Khan Academy, YouTube, type in the question.
2: Type it in.
0: And And then
2: the last thing I would say would be take this opportunity, because most parents don't have this, this, this unique ability, Take this opportunity to learn how your kid learns Hmm. so that when you go back to school, you know what to advocate for. If your kid needs to be touching something to learn their kinesthetic learner, take this opportunity to figure this thing out. Don't, like, put them on the computer and walk out the room and leave them for four hours. Learn how your kid learns because that tells us a lot about um you know what you should be advocating for from your teachers so when we go back to the normal classroom setting and you've got a teacher that does all talking and writing on the board and you've got a kinesthetic learner you need to be able to advocate for your student um on the last episode you guys talked a lot about the parents not knowing which questions to mm-hmm. ask a lot of that starts with not really being able to spend the time with their child mm. children to learn enough about them to know uh-oh what they're uh-oh so you know what I mean like and yeah. again, it's not a knock on them. This no. is set up in that way that if I'm at work for eight hours, you at school for eight hours. You come home, you're only up for two or three hours before you go to bed. I don't have a lot of time during a normal day to mm-hmm. learn about my kid. I I have the same conversations with my three kids at home. How was your day? Good. Every kid from five to.
0: Twenty-two says good and doesn't give you any details.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right, you killing the boy. Ooh,
2: that
0: is what right there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Brendan, you sound like an old man. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: that, you know what? And
0: that's a compliment. Go ahead, sandals.
1: Go ahead. Let me give a shout out to my brother for having listened to the previous podcast. Yes, sir. Hey, shout out and when you when you spoke just a moment ago about learning modalities. That's such an important inclusion. Like mm-hmm. we have to pay attention to how our students learn. It's no different from anything else you do. If you were an athletics coach, you'd have to attend to specific skill sets and, and learn how, how, how athletes learn best and you operate under that modality. And so similarly, parents, teachers learn how your students learn. There are actually assessments online that help you learn, help you learn, help your student learn how they learn best, whether it's, audio kinesthetic whether it's music whether so many different orientations so that's such an important inclusion into classroom spaces and many students are visual as we know and tactile so those inclusions should really be present in almost every learning opportunity.
0: Brother Toray, recommendations, insights on what we can do to support our kids as they're going through this COVID-19 learning experience.
3: And that was an excellent segue that statement was. as well. I think What's most important is try not to get caught up in the hysteria. Hmm. I, you know, everybody just has that, I heard somebody told me this is what happened. at the, Realize that there are many districts in, in California. There are many, many districts in L.A. County. And, you know, know what school district your kid is actually a part of. You know, I have so many, isn't this LA unified? No, this is a completely different school district and we're doing a completely different format. And that's what I think throws off a lot of people because everybody's not unified in that manner. That probably is more on the honor roll and detention list, but um, for sure, I think that if we were more unified then you wouldn't have so many parents and families having all of these questions. Um, other things that are just as simple, like make sure that your information in in our uh, school system is updated. Mm. You know, I'm trying to, you're telling me that you don't have an email, you haven't received right. any email from the teacher. But when I check into the system, there is no email or the email mm. that you have um, is some old email or all of the contact information to even get you anything that you need is not even relevant because we have a high transient population in the antelope valley so you've moved for the third time from antelope valley to vegas and now back to la and now back to the antelope valley and who's supposed to keep track of that? that's not necessarily my responsibility or the school's responsibility when you take your kid out of the school make sure the information is updated because we're doing everything on we're doing everything on our end to ensure that that those kids and there are multiple, they're, there's one family that probably has multiple children
1: at the school, right? We're doing everything we can
3: to ensure that, that kid is successful.
1: Brother Ture, let, let me follow up that point because you made a great one. But I'm a parent and I've got four kids at a school. Maybe three of them have had behavioral issues. Why do I want to make sure my information is current with the school when likely they're going to contact me with some negativity concerning my kids' behavior?
3: Hmm so very true, and I can, I can understand that. And I'm sure there are many parents at home now realizing, you know what? The school probably wasn't lying when they said my kid was a little <laughs> bit out of control in the classroom. <laughs> um, but it's still important. I mean, even we still have those kids who are at home that still need to we still need the service. And I have a family now that I, I work with, you know, through, have worked with throughout uh, the year, and she has three kids at the school, and all three kids have been behavior issues. But I still call regularly, just to, even as an administrator, just to make sure, you know, how are things going? Because I know that she gets up at three o'clock in the morning and she has to drive two hours from the Antelope Valley to work, and her kids are probably running amok in the Antelope Valley. They still, don't have all the technology that they well, they say they don't have the technology that they need, but you know who knows? But all of that, I'm, I guess, I'm just saying, try not to get involved in this area make sure that you really understand all of the pieces that you need to be able to help the school help you Um, and then especially for parents who have kids who are enrolled in special ed make sure that we have copies of your iep sometimes um, again if you have moved to multiple districts that information doesn't always follow and every time a kid goes to a different school district you at least have a copy of the last IEP. Even if that last IEP is two years old, we need something because then we, we don't want a due process to be filed against the district or the school site saying that we didn't file the IEP and we can't simply say, we don't have a copy of the IEP. We have to do our due diligence. And A lot of times um, the state says, well, you didn't do your due diligence, due diligence enough because we were able to find the IEP Uh, So you should have been able to do the same thing. So, you know, I would just say, check email, be patient, don't get involved in hysteria and make sure if you have kids enrolled in special ed that we have all the information we need.
0: Brothers, I'm gonna see if I can um, capture what you've shared with with families. Uh, Sandals and I are going to do a couple of presentations uh, to support uh, black families. And I think this is probably the most important aspect of the conversation. Make sure that parents that you hit rewind on this segment, and that you follow up, and hopefully what we can do maybe is provide some type of email link so that if you have questions, we can respond to you to support you as you're supporting your children. So we're going to now segue to our final segment, uh, talking about someone's going to be on detention, someone's going to be on honor roll. Next up, the two percent
1: okay we are back with our final component this is the segment where we place someone either a person as an individual or an entity on either honor roll or detention honor roll being a favorable place to be and detention being an unable place to be so gentlemen thinking about the discussion we've had to this point and perhaps others that went Undiscussed. Who would you like to place on detention, and or honor roll? And either of you can start.
2: For me, I'm gonna go detention for uh, 45. Um, <laughs> he continues to astound me at how poorly he can manage running a country like um, the fact that he just announced that he's trying to ban TikTok, <laughs> but we, you know, in the middle of a pandemic. Like, this shouldn't be within the top 30 of things that he's concerned about, but he's putting out this order that they've got to ban TikTok, and um, it specifically upsets me because for some of the things that we do to engage my kids, um, we have them create like dance videos, TikTok videos to like, in lieu of physical education, because that part gets left out of education a lot. And if they ban it, then now, you know, this platform that we were using as educators to try and continue engaging our kids is going to be blocked because he's got an ego trip. So I'm putting him on detention permanently.
1: How about honor roll? Do you have anyone you'd like to exalt or acknowledge?
2: Um, on a roll again. Just all of the educators that um, that have been sharing resources. I'm in so many different educator Facebook groups and Instagram pages, and you know, I'm I'm in the process of building my little Bitmoji classroom right now. And so, just all of the ed- educators that are nice. really showing that they're they're taking that this challenge head on to make sure that we're not losing these kids just because we're not in the physical classroom. So nice. all of the educators that are sharing their resources to help teachers that you know, may not know how to do the Bitmoji classroom or the Google, whatever, but they're sharing it so that everybody can uh, reach as many kids as possible. So all of the educators doing their thing, uh, leading back into the beginning of this new school year.
1: Love it. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Brother Toure, honor roll on detention. I uh, have
3: both. So for detention, it's the California State Board of Education um, for a lot of the back and forth that they've gone mm. through with the teacher, teacher credentialing process mm. um, as it relates to what's going on with, with uh, COVID. But here, lately, with um, the rollout for instruction and distance learning, and having documentation that is more you speak and almost requires you to have a JD to really understand what you need to do or what we're trying to do at the school site. I think a lot of things are very redundant. And even though you have individuals who have been site-based administrators or who really have a good understanding about education, they seem to have made it even more complicated and unnecessarily something as simple as, Is this teacher going to have to, will they need to pass the RECA this year, or are you going to extend it for the following year? Why does that require uh, five pages with all these subsections when it's such a very simple question that you need to answer? And if that's about the RECA, we won't even get to the CSET or the CBEST or any of the other pieces that are needed for um, teachers. Um, for the honor roll, I'm going to give a shout out to every site-based administrator in the United States because it has taken a lot of hours that I don't think that um, sometimes our teachers or families really understand the manpower that it requires to try to understand what's going on at home, understand teacher psychology, try to put all of these things together. Some site-based administrators, Summers have been decimated, trying to figure out what to do. So to my site-based admin across the country, kudos to you.
1: Excellent. And thank you for that. And just for good measure, before I get to you, Dr. Kirkwood, let me explain. The RECA is an assessment that multiple subject candidates must take, and it is the Reading Instruction Competency Assessment. I think, I, I think I've gotten that correct. That's correct,
0: brother. Man, y'all know Georgia's been tripping. Uh, Brian Kemp sued Keisha Bottom because she's trying to regulate and ensure that folks in these areas are safe and healthy. But if you go deeper into Georgia, Dallas, Georgia, there's a high school by the name of North Paulding, and I think a young lady by the name of Hannah put them on blast because in packed in the hallway are high school students. Some very few with masks, most without masks. And that's just idiotic. I mean, it's just crazy to politicize, to put kids at risk, just to make a point. Y'all going on detention this week. And then for that young lady that was brave enough to expose them to put it out on social media and then when she got suspended she was like well it is what it is you're going on the roll kudos to you and to all my students out there that are listening if it's something's going wrong speak up and speak out
1: we got your back. Real talk. Real talk. I love it. I love it. Gentlemen again I'm going to be a little bit of a contrarian. I can't say that I had a conspicuous detention. But give me time, one may come to me. So I'm going to just focus my attention on honor roll. And I want to honor the parents of students who are returning to schools amid all the uncertainty. Parents are scrambling, trying to acquaint themselves with the new expectations. And I've seen parents attend virtually, of course, school board meetings, and they've reached Mm -hmm. out for support to our credential program in particular, asking what, if anything, they can do um to get more comfortable as as their children, their babies, re-enter these spaces and thereby making themselves susceptible potentially to this virus. So I just exalt parents for being um, the everything in the children's lives. And I don't have a detention for you all this this fine podcast, but stay tuned for the next one. I'll have probably two for you. So so gentlemen, with that, we're going to bring things to a close You gentlemen have brought to the fore great insight and lots of information that we will use, Dr. Kirkwood and I in particular, we will use moving forward in our research, conducting Mm -hmm. other studies. Definitely. Thank both of you for your time and your experience. And we'd love to potentially, and please help me out with how we can do this, Dr. Kirkwood, I'd love to um, leave our contact information for anyone who would be willing to reach out for additional support. Is that something we could potentially chat? Definitely. You know, we'll, we
0: do we'll talk to our producer, Dr. Ed Rice, and possibly put our link, our email, our contact information um, some way that is visible. So when folks are accessing the podcast, they can reach out to our, um, our host and really ask, they may be afraid to ask to their school sites, other school sites.
1: Gentlemen, as we conclude, anything burning that you'd like to say in closing? Any closing remarks, thirty seconds or less?
2: Um, I mean, again, I just want to thank everybody uh, for having me. You know, I was excited when I had the invitation, and you know, hopefully, I can be
3: back soon.
1: Love to have you, brother. Thank you. Brother Tory, anything? I was
3: happy to be. Uh, yes, I was. I was definitely happy to be a part of this conversation. I, I don't think that a lot of times. Uh, As as an administrator, you get a chance to share a lot of information. Sometimes it tends to be teacher-focused, so it was very, very cool to be able to share this information. And thank you,
0: Brandon and Torey, for joining us. It was a pleasure having you on.
1: Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And that concludes this podcast of The 2%. We look forward to seeing you all for our next edition. Thank you all so much. Peace. God bless.